<laughs> psychology and culture. I almost forgot what class I'm in today already. Uh, welcome, and, and uh, I hope everybody has had a good week um, and that everything is going well for everyone. Um, I did want to start. Does anybody have any questions to start with before we get uh, moving along? I do. I have a question because I know I'm missing like two assignments, but when I try to go back into the like the recordings to hear, because like last week I wasn't here. So I tried to go back and look for the recording and I can't find it. Well, Shauna, so for last week, what we did was, um, and I apologize, I thought I put this in the announcements, but it looks like I didn't. So for last week, if you want to make up for last week's work, um, if you read the first two articles, the first, actually, I think it's the first three articles that are under class reading and just write a reflection on that, that will catch you up on that assignment. I apologize. I meant to put that in the announcements, but it looks like I didn't do that. Okay. And then like for the week three reflection, which ones were we supposed to read? Because it doesn't say, it just says reflection three. And then I tried to click on it and it doesn't, like it just confused me. And I didn't know which readings we're supposed to do for the week. That's a good question. What did we do in week three? I think that's the September 10th lecture. Okay. Yeah. So it's the, yeah, it'd be the September 10th one. Um, and it's just at the bottom under class lectures. Okay. Apologize about that. I'll work on that today and try and clean it up and make it a little bit more clear for you all, okay? Thank you, I appreciate it. Any other questions? Okay, well, let's get started. So this week I want to, so last week uh, I had you read some articles on social identity to kind of prime you for this week. And this week, we're really going to be talking specifically about identity and social identity, because it is probably one of our best theories at the time that determines why people seek out a cultural identity, why people seek out a place for them within our social world. Um, and uh, it also is probably our best explanation of things such as discrimination and prejudice, but also, as we will see, there's a lot of health benefits to having a strong social identity. So uh, we'll start with that. Uh, we'll look at some examples of in-group, out-group pressures. Um, and then next week, we will broaden it back out to culture. So this week, it's more about why do individuals seek out culture? Why do people seek out identity? And then next week, we'll broaden it back out to the cultural level and look specifically at different cultures um, as it comes to their how they view their identity in the um, view of what's called collectivism versus individualism. Um, and so that's kind of where we're headed. And let me go ahead and I'll share my screen. Oops, I gotta go on. 
So in, in really to start with this, if you read the uh, uh, Chajaval and Turner article, you'll know that there's kind of two theories that we'll, we need to discuss as we're talking about this and talk about in-group, out-group formation. One is uh, social categorization theory, and the other one is social identity theory. And just to kind of give a preview, social identity theory is uh, why we seek out people similar to us, and we develop an identity with that group that almost, well, does feel like um, uh, it's a part of us. It's, it's who we are. So, uh, for example, if you're strong in your Native American roots, you feel that that is you, that's part of you. Um, if you're a mother, um, you don't see yourself as just a category of mother. Your personality, your identity is a mother or a father or a son, and it feels like it's a part of you, okay? Social categorization is a process by which we develop and find groups, okay? Um, social categorization is a, a product of our limited brain capacities, okay? Uh, the human brain on average is able to only know, remember about uh, 75 to 100 names or individuals. Beyond that, uh, the system becomes so overwhelmed that it forces itself to put things into categories. And so, uh, you know, we can think of many of the categories uh, that we have today. So we have gender, we have race, we have language, we have, um, you know, uh, social economic status. All of these are... are are uh, there because of the uh, huge number of um, uh, uh, individuals or that, that, that we can't recognize specifically. And we even do this in the animal kingdom. Like for example, there's something like 300,000 different uh, types of beetles, okay? Uh, species of beetles, but we put them all in one category as an example, okay? Now, that's an extreme example, but it's an example. Now, when does social categorization begin? Currently, with our current technologies, uh, we used to think that it didn't start until late childhood, where, where uh, children started to discriminate between them and others. Uh, and hence, there's a lot of commercials where, you know, you see a little white kid holding a little black kid's hand, and they say, prejudice is learned, it's not innate. Um, but more recent data actually shows that um, infants start to discriminate almost at birth. Um, they start to give preference for the color of their mother's skin uh, and the voice of their mother. Uh, if they're close to their father, they'll do the same thing with the father. And anything that is not like mom and or dad, they will basically discriminate. They will get fussy. They'll get, they, they don't like it. Um, and then they continue to develop that into uh, early childhood. So categorization into groups and discrimination between groups, it seems uh, from the evidence that we have right now is an innate process and it begins at birth, okay? 
So we are wired in a sense to put things into categories and the categories we're in, this goes to social identity theory, are ones that we will uh, see as, you know, the ones we should have and the ones that others don't have, we will see as foreign or, or, or not uh, as good, okay? I wanna show a video that kind of shows this about, it's, it's kind of about what happens when identity is denied, those kind of processes that occur when one's identity is denied because that identity is being taken by another group and saying, this is how you should behave. Um, and I kind of want to go in this to emphasize the importance of identity. Okay, so let's play that video. Let me mute myself really quick. He was tall, handsome, young, and rich. At the turn of the 20th century, Burt Williams sold out theaters from coast to coast and headlined hit musicals on Broadway. He counted Britain's King Edward VII, educator Booker T. Washington, and stage diva Sarah Bernhardt among his biggest fans. Yet when this highly regarded actor appeared on stage, he looked like this, his face hidden behind a degrading mask of burnt cork. It was a bizarre tradition handed down by minstrelsy, the most popular form of entertainment in the United States during most of the 19th century. Black-faced minstrels began touring the country in the 1830s as white men blackened their faces to portray exaggerated and derogatory caricatures of African Americans on stage. The minstrels spread the stereotype of blacks as shiftless, lazy, comical, and childlike. On stage, minstrels traded jokes about eating watermelon and stealing chickens, then sang songs about their love for their masters and the old plantation. This stereotype nourished the idea, then held by many whites, that blacks were simple-minded and somewhat less than human. Minstrelsy painted a portrait of blacks that was reassuring and non-threatening for a largely white audience. When African Americans began taking to the stage in larger numbers after the Civil War, the minstrel show provided a major gateway, and keeping with tradition, many black performers appeared in blackface. Born in the Bahamas in 1874, Egbert Austin Williams grew up in Riverside, California. As a teenager in the early 1890s, he joined a minstrel show but he despised the thick, sticky makeup and swore never to wear it again. After quitting the show, Williams teamed up with George Walker, another ambitious and talented young man, to form a song and dance duo that performed on the streets and in the saloons of San Francisco. In time, Williams and Walker decided to work their way across the country with the goal of reaching New York and performing on Broadway but it was a bumpy road east. After being fired from a show in Chicago, they found work in a Detroit theater. And that's where Williams broke his vow. He smeared on burnt cork and sang a ragtime song he'd just written. The reaction was overwhelming. Greeted by raucous laughter and applause, 
the team scored its biggest success to date. For the rest of his career, Williams rarely appeared on stage without blackface. Over time, he developed the character of a Jonah man, a poor soul who attracted hard luck and trouble like a magnet. It was a characterization that struck both a sad and humorous chord with black and white audiences alike. After arriving in New York, Williams and Walker scored a big hit in vaudeville, and within a few years they formed their own theatrical troupe. In 1903, they took their show, In Dahomey, to Broadway, the first Broadway show written, directed, and entirely performed by blacks. Williams and Walker then took In Dahomey to London, where they played a royal command performance at Buckingham Palace before the King and Queen of England. After ill health forced George Walker to retire in 1909, impresario Florence Ziegfeld hired Williams to star in his infamous Ziegfeld Follies, the only black performer in an all-white cast. In addition, Williams became the first black recording star, releasing more than 70 records, including his theme song, Nobody, which he co-wrote. In 1916, he became the first black actor to direct and star in his own film, A Natural Born Gambler, where he performed one of his most revered bits of stage business, the poker game Pantomime. In the film, Williams has been arrested for gambling, but in his cell, he dreams of another big game. Though he received rave reviews, achieved wider fame, and was paid handsomely for all of his pioneering efforts, Williams grew restless and depressed. He faced relentless racial discrimination offstage, often unable to stay at the same hotels or eat in the same restaurants with the rest of the Ziegfeld Follies cast. And he felt trapped by the professional limitations of playing a stereotype. I want to be the interpreter of the Negro on stage, Williams said. The Negro has a place, and a big one, in the history of this country, and he has to be shown in the drama just as he exists in real life. But Williams could not find a way to break through the stereotypes that had become so deeply embedded in American culture. He retreated to his doting wife in the sanctuary of their well-appointed home in New York's Harlem neighborhood frequently locking himself away in his vast library to study books on philosophy and African history. And as depression consumed him, he consumed large amounts of alcohol. Legendary comedian W.C. Fields, who co-starred with Williams in the Ziegfeld Follies, called him the funniest man I ever saw, the saddest man I ever knew. In late January of 1921, Burt Williams was in Chicago performing in a new play he was hoping to take to Broadway. He caught a bad cold. 
Against the advice of his doctors, he refused to take time off to rest. The cold developed into pneumonia. At the show's next stop in Detroit, he collapsed in the wings of the stage after his opening scene. As usual, he was in blackface. A week later, on February 4, 1922, Burt Williams died at the age of 47. His life forever linked with the heavy cost paid to racial stereotypes and discrimination in America. Just really quickly, uh, I wanted to ask what you all thought about that video. What what is it that stood out to you in the in his story? I think um, for me, the thing that stood out was, um, I said he's the funniest man that he met, but it's the saddest person he knew. Mm -hmm. um kind of takes me back to like Robin Williams that like, he was a really great performer he was um somebody who enjoyed putting on that show because it brought people joy but within themselves there's something else going on and um I feel like you see that a lot with these sorts of things because you live your life as a performer not so much as a person anymore um, that's just one thing that really stood out to me as far as um, entertainment wise. Thank you, Katrina. That's that's uh, some good insight. Anyone else? Um, I think the part that, you know, especially being black in this, like back then, you know, everybody was against black and anti-black, but the fact that he went to the Buckingham Palace and um, was able to perform and then you know that's something that um, stands out to me because like not a lot of black people were um, privileged then to do this kind of stuff and that they actually took it serious for him so that was my perspective mm -hmm. thank you Shauna I think that's a good insight as well someone else I want to go back to something that Katrina said, uh, because she said, uh, you know, in this case, it's an actor, but um, what this uh, what this story really uh, shows me is what happens when a person cannot be an authentic person, when they have to fit some stereotype in order to be successful. If you think about his his life, he wanted to represent his view of what it meant to be a black person in the United States, but he was forced to be a stereotype, to be what people expected him to be, not who he truly was. And um and and we'll Later in the course, we'll get more detailed about stereo and discrimination, but the point I want to make at this point, this time, is that his identity wasn't congruent with what he had to do to be successful. 
Um, and and it, it really shows what happens when identity is denied. When we look at, you know, different uh, situations people go through, alcoholism, drug abuse, um, uh, criminal behaviors, which we'll see a model here in just a minute, we can almost always tie it back to that lack of identity fitting in within a stereotype or, and, and a lot of times the acting out behavior is a response to that denial of the self or that needing to fit some stereotype someone ex expects for us. Um, and we can even uh, narrow that right down to rioting behavior. If we look at rioting behavior, okay. Uh, this, is, this is a really good example, as a lot of people have asked me over the years, especially over the pandemic, why are these people destroying their communities through rioting? And it really comes down to this. Think about when you get an insult to you, okay? When someone makes fun of you, when someone denies parts of you. Yes, we usually get mad at that other side. But then we start to internalize it and start doing a lot of self-hate and self-destruction, uh, especially when it's repeated over and over and over and over. We start to internalize that and we start to become self-destructive. While rioting behavior is that self-destruction on a community level, um, where you see that hatred be expressed by damaging the community because they're damaging themselves. You know, um, when we look at um, some of the biggest riots happen after a football game and you have people who are known as super fans, meaning that their identity is completely tied with their team. Uh, we see this uh, like with the LA Dodgers, we see this um, with a lot of sports teams where there's riots after the, the, the home team loses. And again, when we look at it, it looks like they're just being idiots, but really what they're expressing is that self-hatred because their identity is so invested into that group and then that group loses. And we see that behavior on the community level, okay? So, this is kind of where we're going with our conversation today. Does anybody have any comments or questions before I return to the PowerPoint? Um, I just wanted to say, um, you you said about the rioting. I believe it was uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I think that said, um, "Rioting is the voice of the unheard." Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to say that. Yeah, yeah, Cody, and and I and I'd agree with that. And the the question we ask is with rioting. Yes, it is. It, it is trying to find that voice. But the question that always been asked is why do they destroy their own community? Right. You would think if they wanted their voice to be heard, they would go to the other side and destroy that community. So you're you're absolutely correct. It's it's a cry for or dignity in a sense. But the, the destruction in and of itself is that same thing we experience about self-hatred. 
And so instead of going and destroying the other community, we destroy our own. But yes, excellent point. Thank you for bringing that up, Cody. Anyone else? Yeah, go ahead. Also, also in our um, in the articles that we were reading this week, it said something about uh, self-derogation and uh, consensual inferiority. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it said. Like how we, I see this a lot in my, my peers and it, it kind of, mm, it kind of affects me, but I, I kind of know um, my identity. I have my, my religious views are first and I was, uh, I grew up in a Catholic family, but I, I kind of just like uh, kind of made my own way out of that and I guess what I'm trying to say right here is that uh, when when my peers are saying stuff like I don't want to be Indian anymore, like I'm not native, like they they, they say stuff like that. And I'm like, why, why why would you say that? And like you said, it's just they feel that it's necessary. And and I and I I I mentioned this in in my reflection the other week too that we we have to face that cultural ultimatum to choose um if we want to you know assimilate 100 and you know to live more comfortably or you know retain our our culture and embrace who we are uh, like the um the blackface maestro guy you know he couldn't uh, be himself but he had to be what he thought the jet the public wanted him to be and that's all. And Cody, what a great connection you made between that 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 uh, film and and what um, you're seeing in 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 your world, right? Because you are correct. Um, as we have more and more generations, um, there's a lot more young uh, Native Americans who don't want to affiliate with their tribe at all. In fact, a lot of them are not even registering or, or doing the necessary work to, to, to even do that official part. And we're seeing this more and more and more as generations pass by. But we also are seeing the negative effects of that um, and feeling lost and feeling confused. And, um, um, you know, um, and, and so, yes, you, you, you hit everything just right on the, uh, the, the mark with the connection between that video and what we see in our, in our, in our social worlds. Good job on that. Um, anyone else have any comments? I guess just going into like tying that to what Shauna had said about him, you know, going to the Buckingham Palace was, um, yes, he was successful and had made it that far, but only at the expense of himself and the people that he comes from and um what do we call that now like a sellout I guess um but it's it to me <clears throat> it ties into like that fight or flight mode um it's just this one was one of the times where it sort of goes into fight that you just had to fight just to survive in the time that you were in and and um it's entertainment, but that's, to me, that ties into him truly not being happy because he 
was successful in just truly making fun of his own people and how they are, which I mean, in a way, that's what comedy does is we have to be able to laugh at ourselves, but to be able to, but to have to, to really degrade yourself in front of an audience and degrade your people in front of an audience um, that, you know, that can't have long lasting, um, you know, happy effects, I guess. So that was the other connection that I made. Yeah, I agree with that, Katrina, totally. And I, I think, you know, again, going back to what Shauna said is, yes, he was able to go to all of these places and sit on large stages and everything. But once he was back into his personal life, he was placed right back into that category, right? So back then, he couldn't go to the same hotels that his fellow actors were going to. He had to go to a Black one. He couldn't eat with his fellow uh, white actors. He couldn't interact with them unless it was on the stage. Um, and if we think about how that extends to to almost everyday life, right, is, is who we affiliate with uh, on a psychological level are the people we're most comfortable with. But sometimes life doesn't allow us to, to, to exceed those boundaries. You know what I mean? So very good um, observations. Okay. So let's get back into uh, our content. If I have the right one. So just really quick on, on, on what is social identity theory. It is what's called a meta theory. And it's uh, meta meaning that it's supposed to explain a wide range of uh, uh, phenomenon. And so some of the things that uh, social identity theory tries to explain are things like social cognitions, why we categorize uh, into categories one, and then two, how do we interact with our world, okay? Through social interaction. And it's meant to also explain what's called intergroup behavior, why groups uh, tend to collide or, or have difficulties. And it provides different social levels of analysis. So we could use it to look at the individual level, what the individual is, is experiencing, and then, and then what groups do to uh, uh, interact with each other and then to the broader social system. So um, so probably uh, our first theory of, of group behavior, of why we was done by Floyd Allport, Allport in 1924, which he developed something called individual psychology. What he asserted was, is that group behavior can be explained by anal analysis of the individual, that it's the individual and his or her individual choices that develop group and group behavior. And this had a, a, a large impact here in the United States um, because it's really uh, a response uh, of what's called individualism, okay? Uh, next week, we're going to talk about individualism versus collectivism, okay? 
individualism states that the reason a person is successful or a person is a failure is because of the individual, that there's no other variables uh, that, that create someone to be either successful or fail. Um, it's all about the individual. In collectivism, it's about the community. Your, your identity is within your family. If you fell, your family fails. If your family fails, you fail. And so there's an interconnectedness between the, the family and community system and the person, okay? Here in the United States, we, we, we are a very individualistic country overall. Now there's communities that can have high collectivism, okay? We can see this, for example, we see this in some of the very close-knit Native American tribes throughout the United States. We see this within some religious communities uh, throughout the United States. But overall, the overall arcing system here in the United States is what's called an individualistic culture. And it is the basis for our medicine. It is the basis of counseling and social services and all of those different things that are aimed to help a person become better is that it all focuses on the individual and what the individual is doing, okay, versus other systems that focus on the group, okay. Um, well, uh, as the article you read by Tosh Fell and Turner, Tosh Fell actually was a, 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 came out of World War II. He had many family members who were exterminated by the Nazis and, and he wasn't satisfied with this individual level of analysis because how could a million Germans who supposedly have individual minds making individual assertions allow the atrocities that the Nazis did during World War II. It would just basically mean if, 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 if World War, if it was an individual thing, basically every single German who was part of it, which now there were some dissenting people, I'm not gonna deny that, there were some quote unquote Germans who were against the German machine, but if it was all individual systems, everyone, every million, the millions of Germans that supported that uh, system, um, well, it would have been a country full of psychopaths, okay? Because on the individual level, only a psychopath could do the things that the German government did to people. And so they were very dissatisfied with this idea that it's just an individual making decisions to either go with the government or not go with the government. There has to be something else in place. And that's where uh, they, they developed this theory of social identity. And we're gonna see some different examples of how you can create almost a World War II type situations with young boys um, you can create that discrimination be on the group level um, that doesn't necessarily happen on the individual level. So 
but we should talk about us for just a moment. And I want to start with this idea of the self-concept first. The idea of self-concept uh, was introduced by a, a gentleman named William James. He was uh, He's known as the father of uh, uh, American Western psychology. He was one of the first to write textbooks here in the United States. And he's the first one to uh, uh, talk about this idea of the self-concept, uh, which is the totality of one's personal and social identity, which creates a bridge between the individual and society. And he broke down identity into two categories, the social identity, and he actually called personal identity, he called this your spiritual identity, okay? But uh, it later was called by uh, Tosh Fallon Turner, your personal identity. Your, your personal identity are those identities that are relevant to the individual and interpersonal processes. These are basically everything that makes you, you, you unique. And, and um, so your unique personality um, your temperament, um, those types of things that are just unique to you, okay? Social identity, according to Chashvel, is the individual's knowledge that he, uh, they belong to a certain social group together with emotional and value significance to him of, to him of his group membership, okay? This is basically the process of uh, seeking out those who are similar to I, and then us creating identity with them. So, you know, some of the most basic I, social identities we could think about is a mother, father, student, employee, um, uh, and, and then even on the cultural level, Native American, white person, African American, Hispanic uh, American, all of those are all social identities because they wouldn't be there if there wasn't a group that identified with that category, okay? And all of these are contained within one person's self-concept. So you could literally think about it if, if we were to, uh, um, for example, if we were to, let me, Just a second. If we were to draw a circle, I'm sorry for my drawing skills. This is this would represent our self-concept. Okay, this circle, let's say. And then within this circle, we have different identities. Okay. So as I mentioned, uh, some of it can be a personal identity such as personality, uh, your temperament, uh, whether you react quickly or coldly or emotionally or not. Those are all personal type of ways you you deal with the world, which kind of makes you a unique person. 
And then we have social identities. Maybe, um, you know, right now you're, you all have the social identity of a student, for example. Poor handwriting, okay. Um, uh, we, we're all probably, you know, have an identity as a daughter or a son. Uh, we, some of us might have identities as a mother or a father. Um, I think it's Cody who, who noted, uh, I think it was Cody, correct me if I'm wrong, he mentioned religion and his religious identity, okay? And this is kind of a way to kind of represent the self-concept, and, and later in the, the course, we'll actually do what's called social identity mapping. Uh, it's a project to kind of really delve into yourself and really see what the totality of your identity Okay. Now, a lot of times these can be interrelated. So, you know, uh, being a being a uh, son or a daughter may overlap with your parent identity because you may carry the same beliefs. Your your religious identity can overlap with parenting because um, you know more that can um, guide you as a parent. Okay. So these aren't unique in themselves, but they are in, in, in one sense, is that there's always, when it comes to a social identity, there is always a group base. It is always what we call socially defined, okay? That without our language, without our, our communication, without our, there would be no such thing as a student, okay? And a category that that person fits in, okay? Um, now, thinking about this, this is also why um, we get so emotional, because we want to protect these identities. So when someone gives, example, parenting advice that is against that parent's belief system, we see, I, I see these arguments on Facebook all the time. Uh, religion uh, tends to be a contentious issue for a lot of people. And then when it's insulted, uh, we try to defend it. We try to keep a coherence to our identity, okay? So what does then SIT and uh, uh, SCT try to address? Um, we try to address the conflict between groups using SIT and identification with group on a personal and group level, okay? SCT provides a cognitive framework for individuals to identify the difference between us and them, okay? Now, why is this different from other types of group uh, theories and group behaviors? Is it's emphasized on the shared group meaning and definition, rather than what you usually think about groups being about persuasion and influence. Okay, um, we go back to the German German uh, situation. Okay, and, and I'm going to tell a story. Um, uh, there there's there's an ice there was an isolated area in Germany that really didn't um, feel much of uh, the the war. They they didn't they they didn't have access to the government propaganda or the 
things. And they lived next door to their Jewish neighbors in peace throughout the majority of the war. Okay. And then when things started to crumble for, for the German army, they wanted to go and find more recruits for the army. So the army went into this village and they noticed that they had their German um, uh, people living next door to Jewish people who were friends, who were community members. They shared bread together. And it's interesting because once the German army came in and they started uh, telling their German uh, uh, uh nationals are their those people who identified as german that hey we're supposed to hate the jewish and what we want you to do is round them all up and we're going to send them to concentration camps that's all they asked that's it there was no threats the army didn't put guns at their heads they didn't do anything to cohese the individuals into doing this but in that community that had been completely isolated from German propaganda, the Germans rounded up 10,000 of their Jewish neighbors, shipped them to concentration camps. Uh, they, there were elderly German men who would hold guns to their German, to their Jewish neighbor's head, not because they were persuaded to, but because of their identification as a German, and they were being told that they weren't being German. Okay, and, and so that's really the difference between SIT theory and other theories of group processes that, re, that state that people have to be persuaded or influenced by a group to be members of a group. Uh, focuses on the interaction between the individual and group, which creates a fit for the individual, okay? And so this is kind of uh, how the, 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 the uh, uh, process works. SIT theory explains many group differences we see in society. Social identity focuses on being a member of a particular group, man, woman, student, professor, athlete, scholar, Mormon, Catholic, Christian, Muslim, Democrat, Republican. And our social identity integrates with what we think of us as an individual. That we take our individual qualities and fit them so they become a part of us. So that our personal, our identity on the personal and social level, we need to think well of our identity. And so in that process, we go through social comparison and we distinguish between those like us and those who are different. So that develops our in-groups and our out-groups. And this is really the basis of prejudice and discrimination um, and why we, we, we discriminate uh, between those who are like us and those who aren't. Okay. Now, Cody mentioned, I, I believe it was Cody mentioned what happens when we deny our identity. Okay. What happens when we don't want to affiliate with those like us and have things like us? 
And let me get to that. Okay. Actually, let me start right here. So um, this is a study that looked at emotions and identity. And the two circles we're going to pay attention to are uh, the social identity and the personal identity level. Okay. And this baseline is based on these two control groups and is what's considered what you would expect in a population, the level of loneliness you would expect in a population, okay? And in this research, what they did is they had people focus on their identity as it relates to a group or their identity as it relates to them as an individual. So basically what they did, in this case, I, in one of the cases, they used students. So they asked it, they'd flip a coin and they said, okay, social identity group, what I want you to do is list five positive things about being a student or being part of a student, okay? In this case, they asked, uh, name five things that is positive about you as a unique person. And then they gave a measure of loneliness. And as you can see, the, the reason why social identities are so powerful is that we can see in the social identity category, when we think about our affiliation with others, the level of loneliness and the feeling of belonging is much stronger. We feel like we belong here. We don't feel the loneliness that we're in an isolated world, isolated from the rest. It's only when we focus on our individual qualities, look at this, when we focus on us as an individual disconnected from the world, loneliness is almost twice as much as baseline and about three-fourths as much from our, our, when we're thinking about how we identify with the world, okay? And research has been done on, on, on other variables such as depression. Um, we know that uh, when, when, when social identity is integrated into therapies with depression, depression symptoms go down. But when the therapy only focuses on the individual level, we see no changes in depression, depressive symptoms, okay? And we've seen this with other emotion categories as well, okay? And so the question is, is why? Why is our identification with our social world so uh, important? Well, one, it is beneficial, okay? Um, I, I'll go back, back to the example of the religious identity. People who have strong spiritual and religious identities uh, tend to live healthier, they tend to live longer, and they tend to live happier. People who have strong, positive views of their race tend to live healthier, tend to live longer, tend to live happier. People who have strong professional identities, love the work that they do, again, tend to live longer, tend to live happier, and tend to live healthier than people who only focus on themselves as an individual entity existing in the world. Okay, this is the positive aspect of having identity within one's life. 
So this is kind of the model that, that, that we've seen and we've seen it play, play out all again when we have a loss or lack of social identity. So if we go back to that uh, video, what he was truly experiencing is a lack of the authentic loneliness of his authentic black identity because of acting and and having to play something that wasn't congruent with who, who he was. And again, using the video as as an example, he questioned, who do I belong to? Am I an actor in a minstrel show or am I a black man trying to represent the black um, uh, person, okay? He also experienced social loneliness. Where do I belong? After a show, he wasn't able to go be with his fellow actors. He didn't know where he belonged. And when he was acting, he wasn't able to act an authentic self. And as we saw, this leads to what we call a failure to survive. Uh, 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 and, and what, again, led... Um, led in the video that led to addiction and it led to uh, death, okay? But these are all variables right here in this, this list is all the things that can happen when we have a loss or a lack of a social identity where we're constantly asking, who do I belong to and where do I belong? And we start to go through this system of failure to survive. Um, uh, when we get into middle age, so when you're getting into your 30s and 40s, for every one week of loneliness, you can take off eight hours of your life. That's the statistical uh, thing. One week of loneliness equals eight hours of time you'll live less that you'll live on earth, okay? Um, we know that this leads to suicide. So as an example, you know, a lot of people think suicide has to do with depression, it has to do with mental illness. In reality, it is the feeling of lack of belonging, okay? And, and a good example of this is research that was done in uh, hospitals. And we had two different types of people going to hospitals people who just couldn't handle their depression symptoms anymore. They couldn't handle dealing with them. So they went to the hospital and said, here I am. The other group of individuals went to the hospital because they had suicidal ideation or suicidal attempt plus depression, okay? And the people gave them two measures. The, the researchers gave them two measures. One, a measure of depression and to a measure of loneliness. In both groups, the ones that were just there because they couldn't handle their symptoms and the ones that were there because they attempted or had ideation, they both scored really high in depression, okay? The difference was in the loneliness scale. People who were there because they were suicidal scored really, really high on loneliness, on feeling social disconnection, of rejection of who they were. 
in the group that was there just there for their depressive symptoms, they scored no higher than base rates of loneliness or lower. Okay. And so that we know that lack of identity, the feeling of isolation leads to suicidal thought and behaviors. Now there's other things that lead to this too, chronic illness, all those other uh, constant hearing, constant ringing in your ears after some type of brain damage and stuff like that. But for those, for the majority of individuals, this drives the suicidal process. Okay. Addiction. Um, again, the most successful um, uh, uh, drug rehabilitation programs, things such as AA, for example, they all focus on redefining the person's identity and strengthening who they are, okay? Of course, we see disconnect. We can also see different disorders, uh, depression, anxiety, morbidity. We see that uh, loneliness can predict uh, uh, illness, uh, just as well as, uh, for example, uh, smoking, uh, eating habits, and exercise. A person's feeling of loneliness actually predicts as much or not better the probability of getting a disease as those three variables. We see that it causes chronic homelessness, and I'll go through these unemployment, family problems, criminal behaviors. Aggression in society, as we talked about earlier with looting and rioting. And we also see lack of identity has a large influence on why individuals join gangs in order to get that type of identity and that type of respect that they're being denied in the community that they're being raised in. Okay. So, again, I, I just want to drive home the idea that culture. Uh, ethnicity, uh, your identity as a student, uh, your, your spiritual identity, all of those things that make up your culture are important to our health and well-being. Because once they are denied, we can see all of these negative consequences start to develop. Okay. All right. All right, does anybody have any questions at this moment before I get into the um, uh, next section? Let's stop and see if anybody has any questions. Not so much a question, but um, I, I'm really glad that you went over this today because we were, I take my, uh, what is it? My history 122 with Giselle. Mm -hmm. And we're going over spirituality and identity um, just this last week. And part of that, part of our assignments were, um, you know, reading old articles from Danny Lopez, but, and the things that the values that we held as autumn, um, he, he talked a lot about um, those things starting in the home so like starting out with the language because the language is deeply connected to who we are that that it gives you it says so much more that you can't translate that feeling of of belonging into into English and um, 
um, you know, not not incorporating those little aspects of our identity, the language, the the songs, the traditions, the practices um, from a young age and him seeing, you know, that shift in society where parents weren't doing that anymore. And um, then like that, people turn to gangs and and other places where they're trying to feel some sort of belonging or some sort of identity as if they're not getting it at home, they, they reach out to those things. So it's really interesting that we just went over like that last slide that you just went over um, as part of not so much some of the consequences, but some of the things that it can lead to. And we do talk a lot about wellness and um, how that is deeply rooted within our people. So thank you for, for sharing that today. And that that's something I could probably take back to that class as well. Well, Katrina, thank you for that feedback. I'm glad you're making those connections between what you're experiencing in the history class and, and these concepts that we're talking about in here. I think that's great. And it's a great example as well. You know, um, uh, Carl Jung, um, he, he's a He's a relatively famous uh, psychologist in the early 1900s. He talked about something called the collective unconscious. Uh, today, we hear terms such as uh, historical trauma, those types of things. But uh, what, what Jung was getting to is that we have these certain archetypes because of the peoples we come from that we've developed over time that include things like you mentioned, uh, uh, language, um, stories, songs, dance, excuse me. And it's interesting because when, when you made your comment about uh, individuals who, who kind of deny that or, or don't promote it, tend to then seek out groups that, will, that they can affiliate with. And, and there's a lot to be said about this idea that we do have this part of us uh, from that, that, that we've, we've developed through our history and where we come from. And in fact, in 2021, there were a few papers released that are finding genetic markers of our collective past and our collective traumas that we've gone through that there probably is a genetic link that links us to, to who we are as a person or as an individual. And so it is interesting that you, that, that you brought that up and thank you for making those connections um, in the class. Anybody else have any comments? I, ha I had something, but um, that slide made me think about, um, my own personal, uh, how could you say, that? the empirical uh, observations, just real world um, observations within my own community and my own life for that last slide with, and I, and, I, and I don't really want to share like this kind of personal information, but and in our articles, they show and they share and they talk about um, real world situations. And like you said, prior to the course uh, beginning, you said, we're gonna talk about the ugly things of the, of the nation, you know, not just the great things. Um, and that's how you can understand, uh, you know, the, the study of the mind, you know, of this nation. 
And when I think when I say that about the personal level to my sister, um, I that that last slide it it said like a, a, an issue of belonging and how it can lead to uh, living survival failure. Mm-hmm. I think it was what the slide said, mm-hmm. and just the the output from there you know they can be catastrophic you know and you know i'll I'll say it here you know i i I, like seven years sober from alcohol and i drank since i was 14 um congratulations i'm I'm 30 now yeah and it's a a fight every day but it's just you know i choose not to to associate i disassociate myself from that stigma and that that social group in my own community and and my sister hasn't done that even though she's older than me but she has children we grew up in a in domestic violence and and all that and and she's putting her children through that so i'm just like i i i really worry for her and and you know i i feel like i can share this with the class because you know we're we're a native class and talking about real issues that are affecting the the minds of our peers and members of our community. And, you know, I, I want to share that. And also <clears throat> we mentioned the, uh, the belonging and, and what I observe today is the, the, the major drug abuse and alcohol abuse, you know, and, and how a lot of the young people are just dropping like flies uh, to alcohol. Uh, you know, their, their body just shuts down because they can't drink. They're drinking too much. But, you know, the drug use is like, you know, like you said, they're just wanting to belong too. And, you know, the meth, the meth issue is, is, is on every reservation right now, it seems. And, 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 and furthermore, with my own self, as I as I reflect on it now, when we're discussing this in my own village, in my own tribe, I I started to be like how I said my peers were. Well, I don't want to be native. I don't want to be my tribe. You know, I look at it with distaste because I was discriminated there by my leaders, and I moved away for like three years, and I just felt like I don't need them. I don't need to deal with that. I don't have time for that. And I'll make it on my own out here. So I kind of, you know, you know, that's, that's kind of what I want, really all I want to share. And since you, since you asked me, we want to share something or talk about, it, I, I felt like this was, you know, pertains to what we went over. And I hope that it could um, um, help us understand a little more the, the material, I, I guess. Thank you. Thank you, Cody, and, and thank you for sharing and, and uh, good job on breaking that cycle within yourself and within in your family that uh, and, and that that's wonderful. And, you know, you did mention domestic violence. Um, and, you know, if we really look at domestic violence, it's a denial of your collective past. And, and the reason why I say that is pre westernization of of the americas okay we see 
anthropologically, sociologically, and psychologically, we have never found any evidence pre-Westernization of domestic violence and sexual assault within the family system in Native American tribes. Okay, now that doesn't mean there wasn't gender violence and that doesn't mean that there wasn't sexual assault, but it was between tribes that those things occurred. It wasn't within a tribe. So the notion of things like domestic violence, I mean, that's truly a Western import and really didn't have a place within any of the cultures before Westernization. Um, and the same goes with the drug addictions and those types of things. So I think those are all really important points. Again, going back to that collective identity piece um, and, and who you are as an individual and who you relate with within your culture is really important. So um, thanks for doing that. I think he, he, he dropped off on our thing, but okay. I think we lost him. But anyways, I hope everybody, Katrina, go ahead. How, how did you say that? You said domestic violence is a denial of what? Well, if you think about it, at least within, within Native American communities, it is, you know, you, you think about the sense of that collective past, right? It's really that denial of that collective past because the peoples that the Native American comes from, that wasn't part of the culture. It's something that was imposed by Western values and Western ideas. And so, you know, if we think about things like domestic violence within, within especially Native American cultures, it really is, a lot of it is driven by a Western view of what relationships should be. It's not something that existed uh, pre-Westernization, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it just, it sounded really good. So I had to write that in my notes. I was like, I like that. That, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to go back. And there, there's a few more concepts that we need to talk about. Um, let me bring up. The one thing that uh, we need to talk about at this point is something called the minimal group paradigm. So what is sufficient to create discrimination and prejudice within a group? And this was really developed in the 1970s and has been used since and um, hasn't been debunked yet, okay? In, in this research, and so this is in the lab setting, we have people come in and we uh, randomly assign them to a me meaningless group. So group A or group B by a flip of a coin. We have found that this is sufficient enough for one group to have the need to be superior and take advantage of another group. So a lot of times what we do in these, this research is we have them play a game where they gain points. Uh, they'll they'll uh, do something in more of a in, in some kind of competition way. Um, and we find that just by randomly being assigned to an insignificant, meaningless designation, 
is enough for one group to want to do better than the other group. This research paradigm consists uh, consistently demonstrates that individuals in a group will consistently try will consistently try to position their group in a better position relative to another group. Additionally, I'm reading now, when in a group, the research consistently indicates individuals shift from self-gain to in-group gain, often sacrificing personal gain to for the, the group gain. And, and um, if you want to think about this, uh, uh, I'm sure we've all done those uh, lovely group projects in school, right? And there's always those group members that don't participate. And so what does the other group members do? They compensate for the lack of the other group members' participation, and they'll finish the project and get it done. Okay, This is kind of what is meant by personal sacrifice for the purpose of the group, for the group gain. Uh, because in a lot of cases, um, you know, like, for example, when I do group projects, I still grade people individually, not the group. But even at that level, even when they know that they're going to be evaluated for their contribution, a lot of times those group members will also take on the, 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 the what needed to be contributed by those non-participating group members, even though it wasn't necessary for their grade as an example. However, these are highly controlled lab conditions, and, and this is something we do need to keep in mind, uh, and many other social and psychological uh, factors influence decision making, okay? And this is where we're going to get into what is known as the robber cave experiments, okay? Robbers Cave is a, a in what's called Robbers National Park in Oklahoma. It was named because it's where uh, Jesse James and his companion, uh, Bell Starr, who were evading law enforcement, hid. So they hid in these caves areas right here that you can see in the slide. Um, and for this experiment, what, uh, what the experimenter is going to do is they're going to invite uh, some 22 psychologically well-adjusted 12-year-old boys. So these are boys who were given psychological uh, exams and they were found to be well-adjusted, no histories of trauma, no uh, violence within the home uh, or anything. They were just, uh, they tended to be, they tended to be well-developed individuals. So we're starting off with, with, uh, 22 boys who have no true histories of trauma. And we're going to randomly assign them into two groups. One group is going to be the Eagles, and the other group is going to be the Rattlers. Okay. And they're randomly assigned, just a flip of a coin, basically. And as you can see in this uh, thing, uh, we're going to set up some territory where along this line here, the Eagles territory is on this side. The Rattlers territory is on this side. Uh, let me see if I can explain this. But the thing that is uh, interesting is that they have no knowledge of each other. In fact, a couple days uh, uh, before the, the experiment began, they brought in the Eagles group. 
And then quietly, a couple of days later, so they didn't interact, they brought in the Rattler group, okay? And what they started to do is they weren't interacting with each other, but they started to do uh, uh, cooperative group projects together. So you can see in here, you know, they're, they're uh, taking a canoe, building a tent, uh, scaling a wall, and they had them do these activities together as a group. And at one point, about three or four days into it, they then made it so that one, the Rattlers, for example, could hear the Eagles uh, playing games and, uh, and vice versa. So here we have a situation where we have uh, two groups that have gone through cooperation with them, their own groups, and uh, they're starting to hear each other, okay? So for the first week, the two groups were unaware of each other. In the second week, we then created competition, competitive competition between the two groups, okay? Um, and just by, so again, these boys, uh, psychologically well-adjusted. The only difference between them is one group is called the Rattlers. One uh, uh, group is called the, uh, oh, I can't remember now. Eagles, I think. Eagles. <laughs> okay. And just by starting this competition, we start to see a lot of negative consequences. For example, get to it. For example, they started to symbolize their own group, started to make their own flags. They started to spray paint uh, negative things on the other group's walls. Um, uh, they would start doing vandalism. They started breaking into each other's housing units and stealing stuff. They started to get physically aggressive with the, the opposite group. Okay, and again, this is just the notation of two separate groups. Both of them went through the same activities uh, in their own group, but now they uh, were put into the idea of competition. And we start to see them fighting with each other. We see them uh, damaging each other's property. We see them uh, stealing from each other. And so we can see in here the competition they created. Okay. And we see that uh, what, what did they, what was their view of each other? Okay. The Rattlers, of course, viewed themselves as, as highly positive while viewing the Eagles as very negative. We can see the eagles uh, uh, thought of themselves very highly and the rattlers as, as uh, not as good, okay? So when the competition started, we can see that favorability between groups went way down. And then I'm gonna explain what happened right here in just a minute, okay? So this is in-group rating, out-group rating. So in the third week, um, 
we of course didn't want to send them home with these discriminatory prejudice and aggressive uh, tendencies um, that would have been bad so they actually went through uh, two attempts to get the uh, groups to start to um, not be aggressive with, with, with uh, uh, each other at the time uh, this was during the times of civil rights of school integration and there was this theory of mere exposure that just being exposed by the, 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 the group that you're discriminating against should decrease um, uh, the, the, the prejudice and the discrimination that you see. And so they, they did mere exposure under neutral non-competitive situations. So they tried to have them eat together, for example. And what that uh, resulted in is actually violence. Um, they, they ended up getting in food fights. They ended up getting in physical fights. And so the mere exposure thing didn't work, okay? So the second thing they attempted is something called utilization of a superordinate goal, okay? So what they did is they set up a series of activities that were necessary for the robber cave area, not for the area of the rattlers, not for the area of the eagles, but something that is important to the entire area that they would have to cooperate on. And so, you know, they had to cooperate on moving this truck, uh, uh, moving this water tank together to benefit both groups. Um, and so they started to have them do this superordinate goal cooperation thing. And uh, because of that, by the end of the research, we can see here on these scales that the levels of discrimination and prejudice were a lot less at the end than at the beginning the black representing the start of competition this representing after implementation of a superordinate goals okay and this just is liking scale so when we started to do cooperation we noticed that uh, liking and everything went up as you can see in here okay Okay, so what does this, this represent? Um, what are some real life examples of this? Uh, well, we know 9-11 is an example of a superordinate goal and how it can reduce things with, such as prejudice and discrimination and hate crimes. For about two to three years after 9-11, uh, we saw some of the lowest levels of discrimination, hate crimes, and even domestic violence that we've seen in our nation's history for a very long time. Why? Because as a nation, we were mobilized against this threat that hit the entire country and affected everyone. And so we saw those levels of hate crime between groups, hate crimes based on race, hate crimes based on different social economic statuses, go to some of the lowest levels in over 40 to 50 years. Now, unfortunately, there's also something called a rebound effect. And that a rebound effect is when something goes below what you would consider a natural or baseline rate, there will always be a rebound. 
And so in recent years, you will have noticed, uh, you know, that there's been a huge increase in what's called nationalism among a lot of people where uh, if you're of an ethnicity that they don't feel belongs in the nation, they'll discriminate, they'll hate. You've heard the stories of the Karen um, and those types of things. So right now we're seeing the rebound effect of, of what we experienced just after 9-11, okay? And so this is an example of, of when we utilize superordinate goals, something that affects everyone that we can actually reduce the levels of hate and discrimination within a population. Is there any questions on that? That makes me think of, um, like, uh, what you said you brought up, um, I was say, it makes me think of, if you ever heard of it, the Hegelian dialectic. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, like it just seems like controlling like a macro controlling of um like the social um groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, it, and if you think about you know what they did with the robber cave experiment, right? Is they had leadership that established the groups, right, Cody? And they set up this group versus group competition right and so it was very artificial but it was very detrimental okay and i would bring this up you know um, um going back to this idea of competition right is um uh, there's been a lot of research on the idea that uh, exposure to violence um uh the exposure to violence increases aggression in children and aggression in adolescents, right? Um, and and uh, recent research uh, has actually showed that what they what they did with with two groups of individuals is either they had them play highly uh, graphic and violent uh, uh, with parents' permission, of course, uh, video games or they played video games such as um, Madden, those, those, those highly competitive games. So here you have one that is, has exposure to violence, one that has exposure to competition. And we found that, that, that kids increased in aggression was associated with the kids who played the competition game, not the exposure to violence game. And so here we have a situation where we've always thought that playing violent video games causes children to be more aggressive, when in reality, the true story is, is playing highly competitive video games leads to aggression. Okay, so, and, and this kind of goes back to the Robert Cave situation where, where just the idea of having a group very arbitrary, and then the introduction of competition is enough to start to create discrimination and prejudice behaviors between those two groups, okay? Our, our text says that just the presence alone can, can um, 
initiate um, those type of um, sentiments. Mm-hmm. And also, and also um, the introduction of of competition. I I feel like for the races, like in general, you know, makes us you know aggressive toward one another, perhaps. And you know, we lose that. Um, you know, just like um, how they have that flag that says uh, "Join together or die." And I feel like that's what they do with us natives too, you know. You know, they're just, you know, make us all compete with one another when we all should be advocating together collectively. And and in another sense, um, I, I'm also prior military. And, and like you said, the robber's cave, um, that's like the melting pot of like all the races, you know, in the service. And you have all kinds of, um, you know, uh, conflict. Conf- conflicts of interest and 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 personal view clashings. You know, people aren't always friendly in there, but you know you learn to put that aside, and like they said, making them work together, those boys, to to resolve the the harsh resentment that was indoctrinated to them with the introduction of competition, and the same with the. We had to put our our race and our our issues that we had with one another or other outgroups in order to get a task done or get a mission, you know, get it done, you know, or do something together and not leave someone behind. And and that that's all I have. A very perfect. Uh, um, good. 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 Uh, examples Cody and I think uh, uh, you uh, brought up a lot of um, uh, good examples of of what we're talking about hold on just a second I can relate to the um, native against native because I'm I'm half autumn or Don autumn and I'm half Akima autumn and my brother, he, my older brother, he is Pima Akima autumn and he always tells me like me and him, we, I mean, we joke about it, but I always tell him I'm the real autumn and you're just, you're just like, <laughs> you know, you're just, you're just there. I tell him. <laughs> and then when, when, when I cook food and then he'll say things like, Oh, you cook like a teal. Well, yeah. Cause we're the best. I tell him <laughs> it's kind of funny that that way, but also in the system where you have, like, say you have somebody from Arizona and you have somebody from uh, North, you know, they're going to clash. They're going to hit because they're going to, you know, the way our traditions are compared to their traditions, even people here in Arizona, like our tribe and the Navajo tribe and the Apache tribe, they're all different. And it's always like, oh, well, this is how we do it. Or this is how it's supposed to originally be done. It kind of goes back to that. But if you throw all aside and you just come together as Native people in general, this world would be so much better. And I, this has always been my thing. I always had this thing where if all Natives came together, you know, we could change this world in a heartbeat, but it's the matter of everybody wanting it, wanting to do things their way, their traditional way, instead of doing it all together, instead of learning each other traditions and making it 
a new tradition for all tribes and not just specifically one tribe to be all reunited together. Now it's just my thing. <laughs> yeah, Shauna, I, I think it, it kind of brings me back. Um, I think you, you, you probably all know that um, uh, the Constitution of the United States was a uh, uh, kind of a, I don't know if the word ripoff or um, trying to think of, of the terminology that I want to use. It was actually a model that was given by uh, uh, Native American tribes in the Northeast. Uh, called, I can't remember the name of it, uh, but it was. And did the, the Iroquois or the five civil, uh, Iro the Great League of Nations, and it was uh, appropriated, right? Yes, yes. Uh, the Constitution of the United States is basically a carbon copy of that agreement that Cody just brought up, uh, where there was a collective action among many Native American tribes, mostly in the Northeast, and they came up with a compact, thank you, Cody, um, uh, that, that, that made them work together and work as a cohesive area. Um, and the Constitution was basically that carbon copy of that, uh, that, that agreement between those tribes. Uh, and so speaking to, to uh, what Shauna was stating, it, there is power behind collectiveness uh, and behind groups. Um, uh, and we've seen that uh, uh, many times in a lot of Native American history. If we look at the... Uh, Iroquois, yes, copied the Iroquois Confederacy. So thank you, Nakia. If we look at uh, South American uh, tribes, we see a lot of alliances that were built over the centuries. And it was when those alliances fell apart that we see the disappearance of, for example, the Mayan and the, and, and the, and the, the tribes in, in, in South America and into Mexico is that they seem to disappear overnight. And what uh, anthropologists are coming to realize and archeologists are starting to realize it's because their partnerships they had with other native nations fell apart just before those societies disappeared, okay? And so, yeah, I, 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 I think you're right, Shauna, is seeing the collective nature of, of uh, of, of our native groups is would be an important step in in uh, reclamation and and really becoming a strong cohesive group and and people. So I agree with that definitely. Um, all right, let me see where we're at. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about social mobility, okay, because, um, well, social mobility is basically, as it states, the process by which individuals attempt to change their social position by identifying less with their less status group to gain acceptance with part of a higher status group. And, and, um, uh, Conditions necessary for social mobility is situation is stable and legitimate. Boundaries per, between groups are permeable. So there's allowability between those groups. Um, 
The problem with social mobility, though, is more desirable members leave the lower status group, for one, and two, the individuals seek higher status are never completely accepted, ending up in a more marginalized position. So we can give probably the best kind of uh, broad example of, um, of social mobility is one, if we go back to that video uh, of, of the individual, he was provided a status, but he was never completely accepted, okay? When we think about um, uh, celebrity and sports figures that come from a marginalized group, such as such as uh, uh, black athletes and and black uh, actors and actresses, okay, um, it's not that they're accepted. This is how do I put this? It's not that they become fully accepted to the higher salonches that they want or to the athletic field. No, in society, we put them in a subcategory. We put them in a different category than what we would. So it's not that we change our opinion about, for example, Black people and, and Black people here in the United States. It's that those Black people who excel we put into a subcategory, but we never actually cognitively allow them to be part of the other broader, more, more higher status groups. Okay. Now we are seeing some changes in this, uh, which I think is a good thing, especially with younger generations coming up, um, where, where, where we're starting to see these lines become much, much more permeable. Um, and, and the idea of stable and legitimate uh, uh, authority is changing, okay? And I think this goes back to probably the social mobility idea also goes back to something that Cody stated about how a, a lot of uh, young Native Americans are trying to deny their Native American roots to be part of the mainstream American population. And this is an example of trying to gain social mobility. And as was noted, sometimes that uh, results in, in, in undesirable behaviors. If we go back to that slide before, that addiction, gang affiliation, violent behavior, because there's not any ever really true acceptance into that category, okay? Um, but as I said, I, a lot of these ideas are also changing with our generations that are coming up with much more acceptability uh, of groups. And we're seeing also population shifts here in the United States that make this boundary more permeable. Uh, for example, by 2025, uh, white Americans will be the minority compared to the growth of minority populations here in the United States, okay? And that's also why we see a lot of white people uh, getting into nationalist movements. Um, uh, we're seeing a lot more of what's called the Karen phenomenon with white women uh, because they're feeling a threat to their position and to their authority because of the growing minority and fringe groups. Um, I think we mentioned this in this class. I, I think it was this class. That, you know, one of the largest growing groups in the United States right now is Native Americans. Um, and, and so that is becoming more 
uh, visible on our national stage. And we see the resistance from the group that for the last few hundred years has been the dominant group. Um, and we're seeing, uh, we can see that in the political rhetoric by the nationalists on the, on the Donald Trump side of the uh, house, um, uh, calling other groups uh, thieves and, and, and criminals. And uh, we can see this with the closing up of our borders uh, or the attempt to close up our borders to make sure no more uh, minority groups get in to the country. And if you look at the true intent behind that and, and calling them illegals and all of those things, it really is an attempt to slow the tide of the shifting demographics here in the United States. And so this idea of social mobility, um, uh, I think we'll see big changes over the next 10, 15, and 20 years. Uh, as we see a shift in demographics here in the United States, and minority groups gaining more and more uh, authority and more and more uh, legitimate and stable powers here in the United States. So it's a very interesting time, I think, to live here and live in the United States as we're seeing the shift in demographics. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see where we go with this. Uh, many individuals will maintain social status because they either feel it's not changeable or there are social cultural barriers to change. So this is when we look at individuals who want to keep their group where they are. Okay. Then we have this idea of what's called social creativity. This is a situation in which low status group compare their group to an even lower status group. Uh, additionally, lower status groups also will often define who they are in more warm terms and emphasizing their positive differences between warm care, low status groups as compared to cold, callous, higher status groups. So um, it's interesting um, uh, because uh, um, I, my, my wife is Mexican-American and uh, the most discrimination that she receives comes from actually uh, 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 black individuals that she's interacted with because they view the Mexican culture as less than the black culture and so and more legitimate than the Mexican culture that uh, 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 is here in the United States, even though the Mexican culture has a lot more uh, standing here in the United States long before uh, uh, Black people were even introduced to the country. Um, but uh, the most discrimination my wife has received, yes, white uh, uh, people, of course, um, because they're feeling a threat to their authority uh, because of our growing minority population, but the other group that she's received the most discrimination from it was actually the black community, um, um, both overtly and covertly types of prejudice. And this is an example where a lower status group will take another lower status group to compare themselves with in order to make them feel better about themselves. Um, the situation in which status differences are perceived as insecure, members can see cognitive alternatives to the status quo. Lower status groups are likely to pursue 
their social identity through one social competition. This is direct challenging the higher status group for influence. So this is really what we're seeing today, especially with the growing numbers here in the United States of minority groups, as we're seeing this 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 uh, uh, this this direct challenge to uh, the the dominant culture authority or the dominant uh, ethnicity culture of white people uh, here in the United States. All right, I'm going to stop here. Does anybody have any comments or or at this point about the stuff we've talked about? I do. Go for it, Cody. Um, I wanted to start since you mentioned your wife and the, I guess the lateral discrimination. I guess you could see. Uh -huh. uh, um, I experienced that too, but. Uh, it and you also mentioned that like how the, the the nation itself doesn't credit Native Americans for the Constitution and where and where like as another reference to to the minstrel how we're we're made to look like we're childlike or that we're you know imbeciles or that we're ignorant and we're incapable and I often like to make the reference that Native Americans are like the grandparents of this nation. We're neglected, you know, we're forgotten, but we're the whole reason why everything exists. And, you know, that's how I feel about that. And, and back to, to the, to uh, the violent, the la uh, discrimination from the, um, the black community, they don't credit uh, and they don't really teach in our schools so that this doesn't happen that um other minorities you know besides the the european culture um before they came you know like you said the the mexican uh, were mexicans and so were the indigenous people we were here and you know we had already engaged with this with the spanish europeans first prior and and much of the much of the southwest was already established and the california was an afro afro-american is what i think they call them the um, the blended culture the blended races of of latino and african-americans who were um uh, i think they were brought you know as moors in uh back in in uh mexico but you know that kind of um there's a there's a video i i have to get the name of it um but they they talk about um this thing called forced amnesia where where, where we just just uh discredit a lot of the those those types of things where it leaves the minorities and the you know lower lower tier of society at a disproportionate um you know uh i don't know how to say it uh it just leaves us in in a in a, in a spot that's you know unfair you know like 
you know disadvantage yeah yeah something like that if, if you guys if you think you guys can understand what i'm trying to get at and also uh, aside from that you know back to social mobility of our of our tribal leaders you see we see it too they get promoted and and a lot of times they don't really help the the community they often just they they inherit that uh leadership mentality they get like oh i'm on council i'm governor i'm chief or i'm this and that and it goes to their head and then they just enrich their families and their individualistic lives and and like the text said they take with them their families up the social ladder and that's often that's it then and we some families are more wealthy than others but you know that's just the nature of our of our economy too you know it's a you know people can make 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 of it what it is but a lot of times people can end up really um poor in some cases yeah cody first on on your last point we'll, we'll actually bring up economic systems as a force of culture as well and we will see you know in in you know, capitalism has done a lot for for the wealth of nations. It um, has brought a lot of people um, at least out of the poverty level, but it also creates a huge gap between the working class and the professional class and the and the, the people who benefit from the working class and the professional class. And it creates this huge gap in this disconnect between those two groups and i think we've all heard about you know the one percenters uh the what is it one to three percent of our population owns more than 50 percent of the country's wealth something like that and so we'll talk about those economic systems and 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 back to your other point uh it is it is interesting i think um as again, younger generations, and as as we see the growth in 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 uh, marginalized and minority groups in the United States, that we even start to get legal pushback from um, uh, uh, the powers that are in play. Because um, uh, I don't know how many are aware in here, but it is actually uh, 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 when the notion of what's called critical race theory came out. Uh, to try and explain all of these racial issues that happened over the pandemic. Here in the state of Arizona, it is illegal for a teacher from, from the K to 12 uh, grades to teach anything about race, especially if it puts a majority race in a negative light, such as critical race theory does. So, uh, here in Arizona, since 20, I think 2020 or 2019, uh, teachers in the K-12 system are not supposed to even be talking about race or talking about marginalized groups because of the influence of another group or because of the dominance of another group. Um, and there's state laws all over the United States. Texas even has an even more strict law about uh, teachers not being able to talk about race because it goes into colleges and universities that receive state funding not being able to talk about these issues. Um, 
and and to Cody's point, the, even uh, you know we see the the this the, this idea. There's a lot of shows about how uh, the country was built on the back of the black man, especially in the South um, when we when, when we look at slavery and stuff. Uh, and even going to that, okay, that's good to see that in a positive view. But as Cody mentioned, our country was established by Native Americans' beliefs about cooperation between, between nations and between tribes. Um, the, the colonists who were originally here would have not survived without the help of Native American people and teaching how to farm in this land and how what crops can grow, uh, what things can happen. Uh, simply put, um, there wouldn't be a white culture here if it wasn't for the work and the assistance of the Native American nations that were here. And so it's a very good point, Cody, that, that yeah, that there's a lot of denial about our history and about what it's supposed to be. Um, you know, my, I, I think of the white culture and the way I was raised. I was raised to believe that uh, my forefathers were George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, and, and that's my lineage, that's my ethnicity, that's, my, that's what makes me an American. But then I look at it and I go, well, no, I don't come from Washington or Jefferson because my grandma um, immigrated here in the 1930s. So I would have no American history pre-1930s. Um, that's not my history. <laughs> it's uh, because my family wouldn't exist here if my grandma didn't immigrate here in 1930. And so the idea that I come from in my white culture, from the, the Jeffersons and the Washingtons and the forefathers, that's even a myth. Um, that's not where I come from. Um, and so even within our white communities, where over 50%, I, I think it's something like, um, I think it's somewhere in the 60, 70% of white people were not even here during the formation of, of the United States and the 13 colonies and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's strange that even in that, we create myths that that's where all white people come from. Uh, and so I think it's a very well taken point, uh, Cody, and I thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Go ahead, Cody. And I really think I, I agree with you. The question should be perhaps why are we as a society allowing the removal of critical thinking from public schools? And um, uh, again, uh, no, I don't think that that's too broad of a question because again, we're gonna get into in this class about this, again, this changing demographics that we're seeing and what the cultural changes may be um, as, as, as the white community tries to hold on to their power and they feel that threat, um, what actions uh, will be taken? Because um, as I said, in 2025, uh, white people will now be in the minority in the country and we'll have to see what that means um, as, as a nation moving forward, so. All right, is there any other comments? 
Um, what is the reading going to be for this week? So this week, that's a good question. This week, let me go to, let me actually pop them up. Here, I'm actually going to put them at the top of the reading list. What I would like you to read for this uh, uh, next week. That way you can get that done. Whoops. What did I do with that? So the three articles, I just placed them at the top of the uh, uh, reading list. So it'll be here. I'll share my screen so everybody can see. What I would like you to read uh, today and, and for the rest of the class today is I'd like you to read this 2012 on, on loneliness comparing East versus West. As I said, next week, we're going to go to the broader cultural level, and we're going to talk about collectivism and individualism and difference between nations, uh, not within our culture and the differences we see here, but between, you know, Western societies, Eastern societies, and the like. Um, uh, and then 2017, kind of from the conversation we had today, I'd like you to read the uh, social identity and attitudes towards cultural diversity. Um, and then the last one is the cultural invalidation, deconstructing the acting white phenomenon among Black and Latini, Latin, Latinx college students to kind of see how uh, uh, that some of the things that we've been talking about today about social mobility and the like is about. So these three articles, um, if you can please, uh, when you're doing your reflection for this week, put uh, uh, put notations of what you learned in that, um, that would be great. Okay. Is there any other questions? Thank you, Shauna, for, for asking that and having me actually organize it. <laughs> Is there any other questions or comments for today? I just want to say that, uh, that video I was referencing uh, that had the forced amnesia is called Far West. It's a documentary. Far West. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's out yet, but they had a premiere, but it's really good. And I think everyone should take a look at it. It's really interesting. Thank you, Cody. I'm going to look it up and see if uh, maybe we could actually get it for the class and watch it during one of our classes. But I'll see, yeah. I'll see if I can get a hold of it. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, one of my um, uh, friends is was happy to be a part of that. That's why we got to be able to see it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Oh, nice. All right. Okay. All right, gang. Well, let's go ahead and close up for today. Use the rest of the class time to look through those articles and, and work on your reflection. And a good conversation today. Um, I appreciate everybody's input, and it's all... I believe very valid and important in these conversations we need to have about culture and, and how it influences just everyday life and psychology. So I really appreciate everybody's comments and, and, and activity today. 
Um, and we'll meet again next week and we'll continue this conversation. Again, next week, it's going to be more uh, country cultures. So, uh, you know, Western uh, culture, Eastern culture, and, and those kinds of things. But um, thank you for your participation today and please enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Mike, then you have a weekend. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Have a good day.